Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Also want to encourage your um, prayers this morning for Joanne Schradel. Uh, Joanne's daughter Annie called um, Barb about um, 6 o'clock, I guess, this morning to let us know that she's getting close uh, to going to be with the Lord and uh, needs prayer. So encourage you to remember um, Joanne in your prayers as well. She's uh, been a wonderful um, blessing, uh, especially in this time of transition. Um, She's just modeled so beautifully what it is to be a follower of Jesus and um, preparing to go to be with him. So did you know that what we believe is important? Did anybody know that? What you believe is really important? A little girl asked her mother where she came from, where the human race came from, and the mother said God made Adam and Eve and they had children and the human race was born. A couple of days later she went to her dad and she said, Dad, where did the human race come from? And her dad said, well, there were monkeys many years ago, and we're descended from monkeys. And the little girl eventually went back to her mom and said, Mom, um, you said that we came from, from God via Adam and Eve, and Dad said we came from monkeys. And the mom said, well, I was explaining to you where my side of the family came from, and he was explaining where his side of the family came from. So, An atheist was walking through the woods, and he was seeing the majestic trees and the waterfalls and the beautiful scent of the the spruce trees, and he was just taking it all in, and he was walking by the river when he heard some rustling in the bushes, and a seven, eight-foot grizzly bear jumped out and started to chase him, and he ran as fast as he could. But he realized that the bear was gaining on him, and when he turned around to check on the bear's progress, he tripped over a root in the path and went down. And now the bear was all but on top of him, ready to strike him. When the atheist looked up, saw the bear, and said, Oh, my God. And at that point, everything froze. And a light came out of the sky and focused on him, and there was a voice And the voice said, you deny my existence all these years, and now in this moment, your moment of need, you call on me? You don't even think I exist, and creation, this beauty that you're seeing is just some cosmic accident. Do you expect me to help you out of this predicament? Am I to count you as a believer now? And the atheist says, well, I realize it would be kind of hypocritical for me to now say that I'm a Christian, but he said, could you make the bear a Christian? (laughs) Very well, said the voice. The light went out, the sounds of the forest returned. The bear dropped his right paw, put his paws together, bowed and said, Lord, bless this food which I am about to receive from thy bounty. (laughs) Is it important what you believe? It is. 
They illustrate the fact that as Bible people, we have a very different perspective than those around us regarding the subject of absolute truth. We understand the Bible to be God's truth revealed to us, and that it's absolute truth. It's not negotiable. And it all begins with the first few chapters of Genesis where we learn about God's purposes for us as human beings. So today I want to encourage you to, uh, while I will have the the cheat sheet up here for you on the video, I want to encourage you to uh, take out your phone or a Bible. Um, If you have neither a phone nor a Bible, there's probably one in the the, the rack in front of you. Uh, But I encourage you to follow along because we're going to kind of move through Genesis chapter 2, and I think it will be helpful for you to be able to follow along. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So this section begins with a summary statement. It announces the chapter and what's to follow. And as I mentioned to you, this is a recurring thing in Genesis where the author of Genesis introduces a new individual or a new clan, a new historical episode. You kind of have this kind of an an introduction. And here we have kind of like two witnesses to an event. Genesis 2 retells the story of creation. So we have four Gospels that in their unique way tell the story of, uh, of, of Jesus. Um, so Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 kind of have a unique perspective. And this source, interestingly, uses the term Lord God, and Genesis 1 uses the term God, if you check that out. And God in the Hebrew in Genesis 1 is Elohim, and in Genesis chapter 2 it's Yahweh Elohim. And so we have a little different perspective in Genesis 1 and chapter, uh, but they're not contradictory, they're just different perspectives on creation. And you may recall that Yahweh is the personal name of God that was revealed to Moses on the mountain on Mount Sinai. Now verses 5 and 6 are interesting, they describe another view of the chaos of chapter 1, or alternatively they describe the world before Adam and Eve were created. In verse 7, we're going to move on to verse 7 here, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Right here it says we were made from dust. Pastor Robin was the one that facilitated the Ash Wednesday service this year for North Sound Church, and When he placed the oil and the ash on your head in the sign of a cross, he said, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. This is a reminder of our mortality, and this is a scripture that tells us that, in fact, all of us came from dust originally. So God put Adam all together. If you saw him, he would look like perhaps the Madame Tussauds uh, wax museum. 
So looks really close, and unless you actually get up and you know scratch the surface or something, which I'm sure Madame Tassad would not appreciate you doing, but if you if you look at it, Madame or, or uh, Adam would seem to be uh, complete, but he wasn't. He didn't have life. He had the form of a human being, but he didn't have life. And so we come to the place where God has to breathe into him and breathe into him the breath of life. And this was more than just air. It wasn't some kind of a, of a resuscitation, not some kind of, a, of an artificial uh, return to life. Uh, it, was, uh, it was, in fact, something far more significant. It was life itself that God was breathing into him. And that included the spiritual understanding as a human being. He was differentiated from the animals. He had a conscience and perhaps in some way um, was associated with the image of God in that whole process. Now, the English Standard Version that I've used here said the result of God breathing into Adam was that he became a living creature. The New International Version speaks of God breathing into him and he becomes a, a living, excuse me, a living being. But perhaps the most literal and most helpful for our purposes is the older understanding, which is that when God breathed into him, he became a living soul. It's important for understand that, that the Bible, the scripture, doesn't teach the concept of the immortal soul. The immortal soul is a Platonic idea, and Western culture has been influenced by Plato and Aristotle. But in fact, we find here that there is human beings created in the image of God. And it's important for us to understand this, that um, we are not given a soul like we're given a heart or lungs or kidneys, but rather we become a soul. So some of you may recall in the old days, um, I, maybe it's still used. I don't know that the the, uh, the sailors amongst us can let us know the merchant sailors. Um, but there was the term SOS, SOS, save our souls, save our souls. Um, and what did that mean? It didn't mean save this part of them like the soul, the kidney, the heart. It was save us. We're souls. And uh, in aviation, they want to know how many souls are on board the aircraft. How many people are on board the aircraft if you have an emergency? So it's important for us to understand this isn't an unseen part that was going to be saved, but all of them to be saved. So the Lord God, continuing on verse 8 of chapter 2, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the river Euphrates. We have here a somewhat of a physical description of Eden, the Garden of Eden. 
It's paradise before the fall. I want you to think about this for a minute. It's paradise before the fall. Adam and Eve were created, and before the fall of Genesis chapter 3, they lived in paradise. And it's important for us to notice in this passage there are many symbols of God's life-giving presence. So human beings are living in this wonderful environment before sin entered the world. And it appears to be a physical place that was laid out probably somewhere in the Fertile Crescent, although scholars can't figure out exactly the, the mix of rivers in terms of location, which may be the way it's supposed to be. Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We're going we're gonna to come back to this verse. Moving on to verse 16 and 17, we read, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So we talked about the fact that in creation we were created with a free will. God didn't want us to be automatons. He could have made us that way, and we would just, without will, uh, just respond to whatever he wanted us to do. But you can't command someone to love. Love has to be given when there are alternatives to loving, for it to be real and for it to be meaningful. And so God gave us a free will. And uh, we know here what, what happened. They were told not to eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and it provided this context for the love of God. They could obey God. They could live in relationship with him. They could enjoy paradise. They were in paradise. But what did they do? They chose to exercise their will and go in a different direction. And we know that they chose the latter with consequences for all of us and their experiences lived out in the life of each one of us. Each one of us have chosen in turn to go our own direction. We have a saying at our house, uh, mom's the boss. And uh, I was fascinated by my mom's ability to influence my father. Barb and I have uh, talked about this often. Um, and that is that um, it, it, dad was a Pentecostal pastor and ostensibly, I emphasize ostensibly, the head of the house. Um, but mom had an amazing ability to influence dad in such a way that what she thought was best for the family was kind of the direction that dad made a decision and, uh, and, and when mom was really good, daddy would even perhaps think it was his idea. So mom had this incredible influence over our family. And uh, we, have, uh, we have in our family adopted um, that expression. Um, and you can ask Barb after if she likes the expression, mom's the boss or not. <laughs> For those of you online, pay no attention to... Uh, <laughs> so the title of our sermon today is, Who's the Boss? And there's a fancy couple of words that I want you to think about. You may even want to write down to think about them more effectively. And those are the words, 
that we take from what happened in the garden and the words are moral autonomy. Moral autonomy. It was a conscious choice that Adam and Eve made to come out from the under the authority of God, from obedience to God. It was a conscious choice to say, we know better than God. Therefore, we're going to do it our way. Now, think about this for a moment. Does this not sound like the morning paper that some of you read before coming to church today or your news feed on the computer? Is your news feed not full of stories of human beings who have chosen to exercise moral autonomy and said, we don't want to do it God's way. We don't want to obey absolute truth. We want to do it our way. And, and some have already experienced the consequences of doing it their own way, and others may be about to experience those consequences. What's happened is as a result of this transition from doing it God's way, from being obedient to Him, from following His way, is that we have developed social contracts with each other. So where do we look for our morality? Well, not in the 21st century to the Scripture. We look to the Supreme Court to tell us what's right or what's wrong. We look to the legislature to tell us what's right or what's wrong. We look to the media And depending upon your political persuasion, the media that you watch tells you what's right and what's wrong. But what we find when we exercise moral authority is we find it leads to a culture of death. The Roman leader Seneca said, the decline of a great nation is typically marked by the passage of many laws. The decline of a great nation is marked by the passing of many laws. What does that mean? Well, it means in the absence of us choosing to follow God's guidance, we develop social contracts to guide our behavior, and those social contracts are continually changing based upon the culture du jour. In our generation, the rise of moral autonomy is perhaps best seen in changing sexual mores. Have you considered how we are bombarded, literally bombarded, with messages of sexual identity and freedom? I have uh, on my homepage, on my computer, I have news feeds from different different, uh, media sources. And I'm not sure there's a day that there isn't something on there about some kind of sexual identity and sexual freedom being expressed. It's just endemic in our culture, and and we're literally faced with it continually. This is not a normal time in history. There's a recent Breakpoint article. I know some of you are Breakpoint listeners. And uh, John Stone Street uh, referenced a research that was done, if you can believe it, in 1939. This is what he says. He said, if the energy spent talking about sex is disproportionate, it's important to know that there were some who saw this coming. The best example is Oxford sociologist J.D. Unwin. In 1939, Unwin published, excuse me, published a landmark book summarizing his research, Sex and Culture, 
It's the name of the book. It took a look at 80 tribes and six historical civilizations over the course of five millennia through the lens of a single question, does a culture's ideas of sexual liberation predict its success or collapse? He goes on to say the whole of human history does not contain a single instance of a group becoming civilized unless it has been absolutely monogamous, nor is there any example of a group retaining its culture after it has adopted less rigorous customs. Unwin saw a pattern behind societies that unraveled. If three consecutive generations abandoned sexual restraint, built around the protections of marriage and fidelity, they collapsed. Unwin's conclusions, he says, can be boiled down to a single issue. Are people living for the future with the ability to delay gratification, or are they focusing only on the here and now? When a culture fails to restrain its sexual instincts, people think less about securing the future and instead compromise the stability, productivity, and the well-being of the next generation in the pursuit of sexual pleasure. What's interesting to me is that a culture that becomes unrooted from absolute truth not only is lived out in the advocacy of moral autonomy as it relates to sexual mores, but it also introduces a culture of death. The culture of death that we see in the abortion when children get in the way of choices that we want to make. But it also affects other human beings who are no longer seen as being productive. We now apparently have the moral autonomy to choose to end our own lives, whether or not we are ill. In 2008, Lady Warnock, a leading British moral philosopher, has been quoted to the effect that pensioners, their word for retired people, pensioners in mental decline are wasting people's lives because of the care they require and should be allowed to opt for euthanasia even if they're not in pain. She insisted that there was nothing wrong with people being helped to die for the sake of their loved ones or society. Another story from the UK in the Daily Mail. A healthy 75-year-old former nurse took her life at a Swiss suicide clinic after saying she could not bear growing old. Gil Farrow, who had specialized in nursing the elderly, said old age was not fun and that she preferred euthanasia to becoming an old lady hobbling up the road with a trolley. In an interview before her death, she complained that her life was in decline, that she was no longer enthusiastic about gardening, did not enjoy late dinner parties, and she had issues with tinnitus. While acknowledging that, that, acknowledging that these were comparatively tri trivial complaints, she said she wasn't prepared to go further downhill. She said, I do not think old age is fun. I've gone just over the hill now. It's not going to start getting better. I've looked after people who are old off and on all my life, and I've always said I'm not getting old. I do not think old age is fun. I know that she says she's not, she's not going to start getting better. So we are being ignored by the law, she says, which originates from a God in whom we have no belief and which is upheld and enforced by people who have no proof of the existence of any God at all and yet seek to impose their views on everyone else. She got it precisely correct in the last paragraph, because 
In the absence of God, we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the result of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is death. So now I want to come back before I close to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Now remember that the context here is the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. And I want you to see here that verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So please understand the fact that in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, which is the forerunner of the paradise that we see in Revelation, the opposite end of the Bible, where we come back around to a place where sin does not reign, where we will move into paradise ourselves, that in the very beginning, work was not a result of sin, but work came according to the will of God. There was work in paradise. And so it's important for us to understand that there will be work for us to do in paradise. When we go to heaven, it's not harps and clouds. There will be work for us to do in paradise to carry forward God's desires and his truth. Paul reminds us in the New Testament that worship, our worship actually has to do with what we do with our bodies. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Could it be our work is a kind of worship? Friends, perhaps if you haven't seen it that way, now is a time for a new beginning. We, we tend to think of new beginnings uh, for um, high school students. You know, a new beginning going to college, a new beginning getting married, a new beginning having a family. But the fact of, of it is, is that we are called to new beginnings, especially those of us who may have felt like um, we're not so much anymore in a place of work. We're not so much in a place anymore to do those kinds of things that we have done in the past. And yet it's so clear from our passage that it's time for new beginnings for each one of us, regardless of our age, regardless of our health, regardless of our situation in life. Our work is our worship. And so for virtually everyone in the room this morning, my question is, what kind of a new beginning may God be speaking to you about? To do the work of being an agent of truth in the world, to do the work of being an agent of the kingdom of God where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Liz Wiseman was the speaker at an event that uh, the staff went to a few years ago. It was a video conference, and she reminded us that no matter how experienced we may be, a.k.a. how old we are, we can find joy in new beginnings in what she called the rookie zone. And she made her point about the rookie zone and new beginnings with a short video of a little fourth grade girl about to go down a ski jump. And we're going to watch that. And I encourage you to listen carefully to the little girl as she gets ready to go. 
Let's watch together. Here goes something, I guess. Jump. You got it. Whoa, my ski's slipping off. Just remember, never snow plow, okay? No snow plows. Just keep it straight and you'll be fine. Do okay. You do on the 20. Straight. Do you go faster on the in run? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Is it any steeper, do you think? Not same, much. Same steepness, it's just longer. Well, just longer. Just longer. Just a bigger 20, that's all. Yep. Have it's fun. A bigger 20. Go ahead. I got it. It's fine. You'll, you'll be fine. Okay. Here. The longer you wait, you'll be more scared. I go. So friends, in this season of moral autonomy, each one of us, virtually every one of us, are called to remind our family and our friends, our neighbors, and our country that we cannot abandon absolute truth without very serious and terrible consequences. And friends, we are all, virtually all of us, are called to be agents of truth, and we are called to be agents of the kingdom of God. And like this little girl who had to overcome her fear, I want to ask you, what new beginning do you and I need to make in order to advance the kingdom of God? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for, once again, for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. And Lord, as we look at the early chapters of Genesis, we see laid out so clearly your purposes for us. And so I pray, Lord, today for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would help us to live into the new beginnings that you have for each one of us, in spite of our fear, to use whatever resources you have given us to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to shift for a moment in our service to a time of communion, and it's so appropriate today that we would do so, because the story we told in Genesis is a story of God's creation, His purpose, and we as human beings choosing to go our own way. And Jesus came into the world, came amongst us, like us as a human being, and went to the cross to become the means by which our sins are forgiven. What Jesus did on the cross that we celebrate today is he restored our path back to paradise. We lost paradise. And Jesus, through the cross, his broken body and his shed blood, restored our relationship with God and our journey back into paradise with him. So I invite you, as we have communion today, to celebrate this.
to celebrate what God has done for us, both in creating us with purpose and also providing a way for our sins to be forgiven. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And as you do so, we'll just remind you that when it comes to a time for communion, um, if uh, you would uh, just remember that um, this section will begin first and then the middle section and then the section on my left here. If you uh, have a, a disability or are not able to come forward, John has some individual cups. And if you just um, raise your hand or indicate in some way, he would be happy to get this to you so that you don't need to, uh, to make your way forward. For the rest of us, let me uh, encourage you to take a moment in the quietness of your own heart to look at your vertical relationship with God and see if anything has come in that has upset that relationship and also your horizontal relationship with others. And in either case, you have an opportunity to confess that, to identify it in your own heart, and to repent of it. And there may be something that you need to do to make that right, and you can take time to to do that in the future. But for purposes of today, let me encourage you to just ensure that the vertical and the horizontal relationships are what they should be before you join with us in communion. So let's take a moment in the quietness of our own hearts before our prayer of confession to humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Let's join together in the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and earnestly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The words of institution for our service are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, where we read, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. Thank you that you became the means by which our sins are forgiven. 
Lord, as we look at new beginnings in our lives, serving your kingdom, may may we be reminded that we don't do it alone. We do it in your power and what you have done for us and the blessed Holy Spirit that you've given to empower us to accomplish your purposes in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.